Uh, so let me, I'll show you a couple of pictures from, from the poker tournament. Okay, it's like, oh, yeah, woo. Okay, so here's another one. Yeah, this, we called these the losers. The guy in the corner, that's Ryan. Or the other corner. Oh, well, I can't really see him. Dude, that's the guy that won the other poker thing. When yeah, we... and he didn't, didn't take a year and a half to do it. So. Really? Uh, yeah. Hey, well, come to Element, win a poker tournament, and take a year and a half to get your prize, apparently. So that's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell me, people. Uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. You don't have to memorize all 66 books to get one. <laughs> Yeah, we just allow you to be stupid, you know. <laughs> oh, this is not starting off well, is it? Okay, so <laughs> uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables. You have a smartphone. You can actually just download an app called Uversion. And in Uversion, you click on Live. It will bring us up by GPS. And then you will get all the sermon notes, the, the verses we go through, and the questions that are on the back of the sermon notes as well because we're all high-tech like that. Uh, I have one thing that I just found out about it uh, a couple days ago, so I want to tell you guys. We, one of the things we do is we actually help and support the food bank, Santa Barbara County Food Bank, and they're doing what's called their, their Empty Bowls fundraiser. And for 25 bucks, you, you get a, a bowl of gourmet soup, and you get to keep the bowl when it's done. And uh, I just, again, I found out about it a couple days ago. It's on the 23rd, so it's right around the corner. And so there's not a lot of stuff I can tell you about it except this morning when I got y'all in the room together. So if you want to go to that, uh, go to foodbanksbc.org, foodbanksbc, like Santa Barbara County, sbc.org, and you can sign up. Again, it's the, they're a great place to get food to a lot of people who kind of need it. So there you go. And that's really all I got before we get going. Is there anything else I have? Oh, no. Yes, never mind. I got, apparently I got Jeremy Denton's disease from first service now. Why don't you guys stand me? Read God's word. We'll get going. First service, uh, Jeremy did this thing where he goes, hey, if you're new, raise your hands. We're like, oh. Because, you know, when you're new, it's like, we don't be like, oh, hey, you're the oddball. You know, you don't want to do that with anybody. And so then, then he did that, and he saw Mikey and I both flinch like this. And then the rest of the time, he was like, oh, uh, uh, and we totally threw him off. So that could be what happens the rest of this morning. This is Job chapter 2, verse 13, and it says, Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would understand how to speak into other people's lives around us who are going through some very tough things. I ask that we would understand your great love and grace that is given to us as your people. So when we go through things, we understand that you are the God that we look to. You are the God that we serve. And that everything, again, has been sifted through your hands as it comes to us. And then we are to offer the hope and the grace you've given us to those around us. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing a short series before Christmas called The People of Hope. Normally, I just go through books of the Bible, but we're doing this because there's a lot of things that look kind of difficult in our society today. A lot of people are losing hope. Uh, you know, wherever you, you watch the news, you see all the crazy stuff's going on. You got like half an hour of, of crazy and like two minutes at the end of, oh, and then this orphan dog found their owners again. And it's like, oh, I guess I'll, I feel better now because of that. Last week I was, I was telling Sunday night service that, uh, I, I think there's kind of issues in our country when the number one movie in the country is about a dolphin who lost its tail. 
and then we spend all this money to stick a prosthetic tail on it, and we just didn't make tuna. We just... Oh, no one's ever coming back to Element again. We are called to be a people who, who do not fret, we do not fear. We, we have hope because our God calls us to a greater hope. In Romans 12.12, 12, this is kind of the, the verse that I want you guys to memorize and, and to learn by the time we get done with this. It is rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Hopefully by the end of the seven weeks of this, I'll say Romans 12.12 12, and you guys will just, bam, you'll have that back and then we'll give you free Bibles in the back because... That's how we roll around here, apparently. You know, this is what a people of God are supposed to look like. In the midst of everything that goes on, we are to have hope. We are to be patient in tribulation because we know that our God is the one who sifts all things through his hands. We are to be constant in prayer, always developing a relationship with him. Unfortunately, most people who call themselves Christians don't live that way because we focus our lives on ourselves. It's, it's what do we want, and so we're constantly sinking. We're constantly not living in the hope that we're supposed to have. I told you that it's hard to trust Jesus even in time when things are good and when times are bad, oh my goodness, that's when everything just tends to go to the, to the wayside. So today we're going to look at a guy named Job. You have a Bible open up to Job uh, chapter 1. Uh, you guys have probably heard the story of Job a hundred times, as we do with everyone in this series. You'll probably hear this is now your hundred and first time of doing it. I was talking to somebody last week, and I told them, I go, it's kind of weird. Like Every week, it's like same message, different guy. Same message, different guy. It's kind of how this whole thing works. Uh, you may have even heard me talk about some of the stuff about Job before, but that's okay. We're going to be good. Uh, I'm reading this set of books, and uh, one, of the, one of the sayings of some of the people in the book is winter is coming. Now, anybody here love winter? Yeah. No, okay. Now, anybody here uh, not have lived somewhere else besides Santa Maria and love winter? Okay, just checking, because usually at Pima Center, we're like, oh, yeah, winter's great. You know, that's because you have never really experienced winter. I, I mean, I, I like the rain, but I don't really like the cold. When I go snowboarding, I bundle up like it's an Arctic adventure because I'm, I'm always cold. Now, a recent survey asked people what words they associate with winter, and these are the words that came back. Death, nice. Ice, hypothermia, wind chill, death. Shoveling snow, black ice, salt trucks, frostbite, Death, thermal underwear, ice fishing, diminished mental capacity, happy days for utility companies, and death, uh, apparently. Now, again, some of you love winter. You're just weird, all right? That, that's all there is to it. Uh, people say, well, God made winter. Well, I'm, I don't See, if you look, before the fall, there was no winter. It was just fruit trees and naked people, all right? That, that's what you get before the fall. It, is, it was never Lake Tahoe in January, none of it. So... Now, regardless of how you feel about this meteorological season uh, of winter, what, what I'm talking about is a winter of the soul where sometimes it feels like you know, snow falls, everything starts to die, everything is really cold, and you begin to lose hope because of things that are happening in your life. This is like a spiritual winter, when we begin to lose hope. Winter could be when you lose a job. It could be when a relationship goes bad. It could be maybe you get bad news from a doctor. You're not really sure what your future's going to look like. Maybe someone you love has died, and maybe God seems silent or he's distant. You can no longer hear him. The hardest part of a spiritual type of winter is when God seems completely gone. In the book of Psalms, chapter 88, verse 13 and 14, it says this, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? 
These are some honest words from a psalm writer. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observer about when he lost his wife. Actually, the book he wrote before this was called Surprised by Joy. And he, actually, he was confirmed bachelor his entire life. He ended up meeting a woman named Joy, and the book wasn't named after her. Just kind of funny how it all worked out. But he finds, And he's only married to her for a couple of years before she contracts cancer and she dies. So he writes this book called A Grief Observed about how he goes through grief. And this is what he says in the book. He says, Where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of double bolting on the other side. And after that, silence. This is someone who says some very honest things about sometimes what it feels like when we go through loss and pain. Now, in, in the book of Job, what you see is the hardest part about losing hope or keeping hope is when God doesn't seem to answer, when God seems completely silent. Certain books of the Bible have very wintry parts in them, like Ecclesiastes and Lamentations in the book of Psalms. But I think in all of Scripture, no one endures much loss as this guy named Job. And so Job, it kind of starts like this. Job chapter 1, verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. It doesn't tell you where Uz is, kind of just lets you guess. But what it tells you, and it goes all the way down to verse 3, it talks about all the stuff he has in verse 3. It says, This man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Land of Uz, don't know where it is, but it's in the East. This tells you he's not a Hebrew. He's not an Israelite. So this is amazing to have this book in the Old Testament that's not about a Hebrew. Really, it starts like this. Long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, you have Job. And now the book starts like you think it would. Because it talks about Job in the latter half of verse 1. It says that he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So he loves God. And so he gets blessed, like many people in America think blessing is. He has all kinds of stuff and all kinds of things. But God is the one who is in control of Job's life, and winter is coming to it. Very bad things happen to this very good man. And so what happens in, the, in Job 1 is the story shifts from the scene on earth to a scene in heaven. And there's a dispute between Satan and God. And Satan is allowed to cause a whole bunch of havoc in Job's life. Philip Yancey, when he writes about this, he says... It's kind of like when we read it, we, we see a play. We see two stages. We see earth and we see heaven. But in Job living the story, Job doesn't see this heavenly stage. He only sees what happens to him. And he loses his livestock and his wealth and his servants and his children. And so in the, in the text, you're waiting to see what his response is actually going to be. And what happens is he falls down and grieves, but then he worships God. He falls to the ground and he cries in Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I had a conversation a little while ago at, with a server at Olive Garden. Uh, not that I always go because I don't really like Olive Garden that much, but my wife does, so I, we go sometimes. Yay, me. Okay, so we go to, we go to Olive Garden, and I'm talking to this guy, and, and he's, he's a Christian. He starts telling me how when we do things right and good, then God gives us all this stuff, and we have enough faith in it. And I'm like, man, that is totally naive about Christianity. Because I will tell you, when God wants to grow us, God brings storms. God allows things into our lives, and sometimes we do not understand them. But we trust the God who has brought those things to us. This scene in the book of Job, it switches back to heaven. And some people see this as like this cosmic wager where Job's a pawn on this board. Christopher Hitchens is one of these guys. He sees Job is a pawn and God's just mean. But that is can be farther from the truth. The key question on the stage of heaven and the whole book is the one that Satan actually asks in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? The word fear is the word yare. Everybody say yare. Yare. Imagine you're at a softball game. You're like, Yare. That's fear, right? It's like, ah, fear. No. Yare, it essentially means to stand in awe of, 
Does Job stand in awe of God for no reason? Essentially, what it means is, is Job's hope in you reasonable? That's the question he asks. Satan says, you know, God, Job is devoted to you because it serves his own self-interest, because you give him things, because you bless him. Satan is trying to call God naive. He's claiming that Job only loves God the way that little kids love the ice cream man, or the way that Joan Rivers loves plastic surgery, or the way that Glee loves musicals. No? All right. Desperate housewives love Botox. Yeah, that, that better, right? He's like, well, if you turn off the blessing, well, Job's going to turn on you. And when, we, when most Christians hear stuff like that, we go, oh, that's stupid. We'd never turn on God. Of course we would. We do it all the time. Mainly when things go wrong in our lives, Christians respond with like, oh, where's God? God's not with me. Christianity doesn't work. I don't have any hope. I mean, the question is in Job, can a human have hope in God in the face of suffering and silence? And I will tell you, sometimes suffering is a test of love. It is a test of hope. And so what happens is Job gets hit with like a second wave of trouble. And this time his response is totally different than it was in chapter 1. He doesn't fall down to the ground and worship. What he does is, is he's covered now with boils from, from head to toe. And he sits on an ash heap with a, with a piece of pottery in his hand. And he's scraping these boils on his skin. And his wife looks at him and she says, curse God and die. That is not very encouraging if you, if you don't know. She would not be leading motivation conferences. <laughs> like, curse God and die. That, that's my plan. Yeah, that's, his, but you understand, his wife has lost everything as well, including her children. And now she sees her husband who's completely disfigured. She thinks he's going to die, and so she's got to take care of him until he dies. She's lost hope because when he dies, she's going to be left destitute and alone. And so she gives voice to what Job is probably thinking and feeling. But Job out loud says this in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Now, the word evil is the word raw. Everybody say raw. raw. That also works at softball games, too. Raw, it's good. Okay? This is something bad, something disagreeable, something unpleasant. So it's not like God's bringing evil. It means that God is bringing something that we would deem unpleasant into our life or allowing something to happen. Job doesn't curse God. He just doesn't understand what's going on right now. And the writer says this, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, originally in chapter 1, Job didn't sin at all. And now it tells you that Job didn't sin in what he said. So you see Job's struggle in here. He, it is beginning. He's starting to lose a little bit of hope. Now, like any man, Job has some friends, and his friends meet with him to sympathize with him, to, to comfort him. Job is famous for his wealth and his greatness. Now he's becoming famous for everything that he is losing. He's becoming famous for his suffering. In Hebrew, it uses the word nud for when his friends show up. Nud is this kind of word where if you ever see like a terrible accident and they pull someone out of a car and they're sitting on the, on the curb and they're just in shock and they're shaking like this. That's nud. That, that's what the word means. That's what it looks like. And so his friends show up and they, and they see Job. I mean, they've heard about all the stuff that's happened to him, but they were not really prepared for it until they saw him like, oh my goodness, this is, this is terrible. And so they sit with him. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So they just sit with him in silence, and they nud with him. Imagine sitting with someone for seven days in silence. This act became a powerful part of Jewish life, because to this day, Jews even now speak of what's called sitting Shiva, or sitting sevens, where friends will come and mourn over a period of a week with you. 
It's a great example when the Apostle Paul in, chapter, in Romans 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn. What Paul says, he, he, goes, he goes, you don't go up and give them all kinds of explana- ex- explanations about what's going on in their life. He goes, you simply sit with them and you weep with them and you mourn with them. Now, after seven days, his friends, seven days, after seven days, his friends begin to speak. And when they start to speak, it's, it's just crazy talk at this point. But there's silence their silence was brilliant. Their silence was a great gift to Job. When seven days is up, Job also speaks, and it's not the words of chapter one, because if it was, well, there would be like a three-chapter book, and it'd be over. <laughs> but the chapter three, verse one, Job says different words. Chapter three, verse one, it says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. That will also keep you off of the motivation circuit as well, by, by the way. You know, when your life is hard, curse the day you were born. That's what you all should do. Job requests that his birthday be stricken from the calendar. In verse eight of chapter three, he says, let those curse it who curse the day. Literally, may those who curse days curse the day that that I was born. And what happens is for 20 chapters, Job pours out bitterness and frustration and confusion and sorrow and loss of hope and anger towards God that is staggering. It's so raw, his friends can't really stand it. Most people who look at the book of Job, they kind of do a cursory glance over it. They don't actually go through all of it, kind of like what we're doing today. They just kind of glance over the top of it. Job's friends spend 14 chapters voicing one primary idea that was a theology of the day and is actually a lot of theology of today. It's called the doctrine of retribution. And what this means is if you're good, well, you get prosperity and blessing. And if you're evil or wicked, you get suffering. See, when Job's friends were silent, that was a great gift that drew them closer. But when they started to speak, they pushed him away. They'd say things like, you know, Job, if you're suffering, then you brought it on yourself. If you can't hear God, then you moved away from him. If you repent, God will deliver you from your suffering. All of which those things may actually be true, but they're not always true because sometimes God brings the silence himself, himself. Christians repeat this all the time to each other today when it's not always true. We generally associate well-being with the presence of God and assume any suffering in anybody's life has to do with what they did something wrong. There are no books in Christian bookstores that are entitled, Where is God when it feels good? Right? Nobody wins the lottery and says, God, why me? Right? And, and if you do and you claim that, give it to us. We've got to move and find a building. So you know, just, we'll take your lottery ticket and I'll be like, God, yay, it's me. You know, I'll, I'll trade you a Bible for it. But... Oh, Christy's going to hate me after today. I, I will tell you, in, in, in Scripture, you see that, that pain was not part of the original creation. And it does tell you God's going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes. Yet right now, God uses pain to still try to speak to us. And when you have pain, it does not mean that God is absent. There's a survey that asks thousands of people what contributed most to their spiritual growth. Number one answer, pain. Pain. When things are good, we are tempted to think that we are in control. But in winter, when things look hopeless, we realize we're not the ones running the show. It is not actually in our hands. I like John Ortberg wrote, wrote, wrote about this once. And he says this, The biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. Yeah. In pain, many times we get clear that we are not God. Now, I'm not saying you go into your garage and start banging yourself on the head with a hammer going, oh, you're really spiritual now. You don't do that. You don't, you don't go up to someone in a lot of pain and say, oh, wow, isn't this great? You aren't God. You're sure going to grow a lot now. Right? Don't do stuff like that because pain is much more deeper. Pain is much more serious than that. But in pain, we do realize that everything meaningful in life resides upon Jesus and not upon ourselves. 
John Orberg actually continues and he says, I don't believe that God is the kind of person who delights in inflicting painful little moral object lessons on helpless mortals. mortals. But in my own life, at least, there is this strange duality about pain. It can cause me to wonder where God is as nothing else can, and it can open me up to my dependence on his presence as nothing else can. Now, what you see is that Job spends most of the book complaining to God. Okay? In, in the book of Psalms, uh, in Psalms in Hebrew was the word tehillim, it meant praises. And so are, there are different categories of praises in the book of Psalms. There are thanksgiving praises, there are wisdom praises, there are enthronement praises. But the most common sort of praise in the book of Psalms is a song of lament or complaint. Leave your finger in Job. If you have a Bible, open to Psalms chapter 44. If you open your Bible like right to the middle, it's probably Psalms. Bam, you're right there. 44. And what you'll see is that, is that almost two-thirds of the book of Psalms are psalms of lament or psalms of complaint to God. Psalm chapter 44, verse 11. This is what the psalm writer says. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Go to verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. See, what happens is the Israelites start devoting more and more psalms to these psalms of lament or complaint, explaining how they really feel inside. I mean, this may be good news for you. Maybe you're good at complaining. Maybe it's like it feels like your spiritual gift, and you're really good at complaining. Well, you know, there you go. Apparently, you're biblical. But the point in the book of Psalms is that at least they were speaking to God. Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis says that in the ancient world, these type of complaint prayers are without parallel in any other religion. In no other culture do people pray to their God in such an honest way. At verse 23 in chapter 44 of Psalms says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Only Israel prayed like this because only they believed that the great God who made heaven and earth actually cared about them, actually cared about what they were going through, cared about their pain, and that actually brought them hope as they're talking about it. Now, of course, on the other side, you know, we, we realize God doesn't sleep, that, that God doesn't hide his face, but sometimes God is silent for his own reasons. And in truth, God does come. God does speak. Even if you are someone who is living in silence right now, he could still be speaking to you, just in unexpected ways. So Job, he is convinced that God has left him. He spends you know, these 20 chapters complaining, 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 and then he starts complaining that he wants a chance to square off against God. In Job chapter 23, so go back to Job 23, verse 3. This is Job, and in the middle of all of his complaints, he's just spouting off, and sometimes we say stupid things, and here he goes. He says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that's God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. So he's saying, I want to go, I want to square off against God, and I'll throw all my arguments in his face, and he's going to answer me. Be careful what you ask for, because God does show up. You know what? Job doesn't do any of that. He's like, oh, you know, he just gets just a little, 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 little bit scared. Go to chapter 38, verse 1. And this is, and this, this is when God shows up. And God doesn't show up bodily in a person. Because if God just showed up in person, he would just scorch Job. So God shows up normally like he does throughout the Old Testament. He comes in, in like a whirlwind. And, and so he shows up like this in Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And, and I don't know what that was like. I mean, it would be like, I want you. Oh, crap. He actually showed up. What, what's going on now? The most striking thing about God's answer to Job is, is he never actually answers Job's question. 
He doesn't answer it at all. God doesn't tell uh, Job about Satan's accusation. What God does is he starts to ask Job a whole lot of questions that Job just cannot answer. And at first glance, people think, well, that, that seems kind of mean. Well, no, not really. Because part of what's happening is God is showing Job that Job's mind is finite, where God's mind is infinite. And there is beauty in the simplicity of God's response to Job because God indicates to Job through all these questions what kind of person God really is. God's questions are filled with references to all of God's extravagant goodness and provision when there is no strategic gain in it whatsoever. Uh, Job 38, verse 25, God says, Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? In, in Job's day, these lines would leap off the page because water was life. Your life depended on the rainfall that you got. No one would waste water. Why would God waste water in a land where no one lives? Because God is a God of goodness. He is uncontrollably generous. God is good because he just loves to give. There's a wild land where nobody lives, and it's beautiful because God sends a river to it. God delights in, cre in, in creatures throughout the scriptures that seem to have no use whatsoever. And God shows this to Job. God starts talking about the ostrich. He said, look at the ostrich. It's totally goofy. She flaps her wings joyfully. It's amazing, as if they could actually get her somewhere. She's so stupid, she lays eggs, buries them, and cannot remember where she buried them. She's a crazy bird. But in chapter 39, verse 18, we says it doesn't seem to be worth much, but when she runs, she laughs at the horse and his rider. See, why would God waste that kind of talent on that stupid bird? In Job chapter 40, 40 verse 14, he says, Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. This is probably a rhino or a hippopotamus. In the ancient world, they, they saw them as chaotic monsters worth nothing because you can't use an, a hippo or a rhino to plow a field. A hippo would be like, boom, I'm going to lay here, and a rhino would be like, I'm going to run you all down. Ha, ha. And it's like, ah, so they're chaotic monsters. And this is, and this is what God says, uh, chapter 40, verse 19. He is the first of the works of God. Literally, he ranks first among the works of God. God is like, man, that hippo, that is my A-game, the hippo. And even today, we play hungry, hungry hippos, right? And he's like, that's right. That's the A-game, the hungry, whatever. Okay, and then he goes on, and, and he talks that God, he takes pleasure in oxen that will never plow a field, that, a, that donkeys that will never be tamed, uh, mountain goats that give birth in secret places that no man will ever see. He talks about this Leviathan, this, this monster in the ocean that we don't even really know what it was. In chapter 41, verse 33, says, nothing on earth is its equal. Why does God do this? Why does God show Job these things? Because God is showing that he revels in the beauty of the least strategic creature. God is telling Job, Job, you know what? I am totally worth it. Life following me is worth it. You don't give up. Even in the midst of your winter, it will not last forever because I am a God who revels in loving his children. And I am the kind of God that is worth getting close to and knowing. Because God is graciously good. He is uncontrollably generous. He is irrationally loving. And God gives for no reason whatsoever except that he loves to give. It is who he is. Now later when Jesus comes, Jesus starts talking about sparrows in one of the verses. Sparrows are a useless bird in a Middle East context. In Matthew 10, 29 and 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Meaning they're worthless. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. 
And then Jesus says, But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God is saying, If I do this for the least of these creatures, don't ever think I will ever leave you. Don't think that you're ever left alone. Annie Dillard, she writes this. She says, When I begin to think about God's extravagance, his wastefulness, his passion for the unnecessary and the excessive and the completely useless, I am struck by a thought so wonderfully freeing I can do nothing but laugh. What if that extravagance extends to me? That's hope. That, that is hope. I mean, as I said, Job never finds out about the conversation that takes place in heaven between Satan and God. In a sense, he's like us. We have have this hopelessness that comes, and we don't know why. But what Job finds in the end is something better, and it is something that God offers to you and I. He finds out who God really is. In Job 42, verse 5, Job says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Now, he didn't see God bodily, right? God speaking out of this whirlwind. What this literally means in the cultural context is Job says, now I understand you better. Now I get it. I understand that you care more than I could ever imagine. See, when Jesus comes to earth, people have lost hope. God had actually been silent for over 300 years by the time Jesus shows up. And Jesus speaks into this hopelessness. And yet Jesus himself experiences the ultimate loss. In Matthew 27, 46, on the cross, Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, there is this paradox, God experiencing the loss of God. So he can be uncontrollably generous to his children that he has called home, bringing us salvation and hope. I mean, it has been said that that never did we see God's glory more clearly than Jesus when he was on the cross taking our forsakenness on himself. Carl Barth once wrote, The great miracle is that God would rather be the suffering God of a suffering people than the blessed God of an unblessed people. See, if you're in a place that is, that is hopeless, you feel like there's no way out, like you're in the midst of this winter, you wonder where God is, well, you don't have to. God is right beside you. He has never left. He calls his children home. He seeks his kids. And even though you may not understand it, God is right there. In the last chapter of Job, God goes after Job's friends for their crazy theology. In chapter 42, verse 7 and 8, it says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, that's one of his friends, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Right? It's like, oh, really? I'm sorry, I thought I was doing the right thing. I mean, imagine, Job is the one who complains throughout the book, who lays his limit before God, and God says, that was okay. That was okay, because Job was crying to me. He says, Now, therefore, take seven bowls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. I mean, I can only imagine that conversation. Uh, Job, yeah, God says I'm stupid and you're right. You know, I, 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 can just, I can just see it. And then when you get to the very last lines in the book of Job, it's amazing. Most people today, they read it and they don't even really see what's there. Job has more kids. He has seven sons and three daughters again. And what it tells you is the name of the daughters at the end. Now, this is, this is amazing. You, 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 this means his daughters got an inheritance. It means that, that these were the ones that he looked at and took joy in. And if you look all through the scriptures, it's always telling you the name of the sons. Job tells you the names of the daughters. Uh, Hebrew names are also usually very serious about something, not Job's names for his daughters. It's all about beauty. Chapter 42, verse 13, it says, He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of his first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karun Hapuk. Now, it's very hard to translate some of these words today, but Jemima simply means something like dove. 
Okay? And kazaya means something like a prized spice or like we would say cinnamon or something like that. Karun hapuk means a horn of eyeshadow. It's like Mac or Avon or Mary Kay or, or, or something like that. What it tells you is he gives them an inheritance. And again, it's useless because that would only go to the, to the husbands that they married. Strategically, you would give to your sons because your sons would take care of you in your old age. What the writer tells you about Job when he goes through all this stuff at the end of it, he tells you that Job now delights in giving to the least strategic creatures. Job has become graciously good. Job is uncontrollably generous. Job is irrationally loving. Why? Because he now understands God better. And because God has revealed himself and he gets it, it inspires hope. It inspires hope. See, Satan was wrong about Job. Can a human hope in God when everything is lost? Is our hope in God reasonable? Of course it is. Of course it is. Job discovered what people in pain sometimes realize better than anybody else. He is not alone. Not even in the midst of his winter and his hopelessness. And neither are you. Our great God has sought us out and called us home as his children. I mean, this is one of the reasons I tell you guys every week that we gather together like we do in this room. Because corporately we come together to worship God together. You get to know each other. You spend some time, because in, in places of hopelessness, we're supposed to come alongside each other and sit Shiva and just nud with each other and, and inspire hope in each other. This is why we're always trying to get you guys involved in gospel communities so you're not just doing this life alone. This is one of the ways that we actually worship God is through learning to do life together. The band's going to come up. It's um, <laughs> kind of funny. I say that and right I said, and he's standing right at the door. <laughs> uh, and, and we will worship God through song. But as we do this, we invite you guys to take communion. Communion is where you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So that we can be a people who are called home. A people who have this great hope that he has given us. And then we, in turn, can be a people who offer hope to those around us. There will be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you're in a place in your life where you feel like you have lost all hope, go and pray with them. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, this whole idea of hope like this is not going to make any sense to you whatsoever. This is why our great God seeks us and loves us and calls us home so we can actually live as a people of hope. Uh, there's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It is a, it is a response to what God has done in us. And again, as I said, we really encourage you guys to get to know some other people. Your life and what it looks like in hope and following Christ is much more on display outside of these walls than in these walls. Inside these walls, you're expected to be nice, right? Out there, you're expected to be nice as well. You know, you're, you're supposed to live and offer this great hope to everybody you come into contact with. Our lives worship God more outside of this place than in this place. And if you take anything with you, that is what you should remember. That the hope that you display is infectious and it represents who God is. And I hope you get this idea of how graciously generous and good that God is. So that is lived on display in your life. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we do ask that you would remind us of your great goodness and your great hope that you have not left us alone. You have called us into something greater and bigger than we could ever imagine. Father, for those in this room who feel like they're going through this place of winter, I ask 
that you would enable them to see that summer is coming and that the thaw is there and that you have been with them every step of the way. And most times you're actually probably carrying us through the snow. Father, teach us to honor you. And as Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to be imitators of our great God so that we are people who live lives that are irrationally loving and uncontrollably generous and reflect more and more of who you are. Teach us how to live and walk in your strength, in your goodness, and most importantly, your hope. Tear us down and remake us new, just like you do with Job, so that we live in a way that we live lives that are more than just songs that we sing to you, but we live lives that are lives that are lived for you and the great hope that you provide. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Amen.